Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Elizabeth Alexander is the author of six books of poetry, including American Sublime, a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize, two collections of essays, and The Light of the World, her critically acclaimed memoir on love and loss. Her writing explores such subjects as race, gender, politics, art, and history. In the light of the world, Alexander finds herself at an existential crossroads after the sudden death of her husband, Fikra Gebiraisus. Channeling her poetic sensibilities into rich, lucid prose, Alexander tells a love story that is itself a story of loss, which she shares in this presentation held on September 11, 2016 at the National Gallery of Art. This program is generously supported by Daryl Atwell. From the light of the world, the story seems to begin with catastrophe, but in fact began earlier and is not a tragedy, but rather a love story. Perhaps tragedies are only tragedies in the presence of love, which confers meaning to loss. Loss is not felt in the absence of love. The queen died and then the king died is a plot, wrote E.M. Forster in The Art of the Novel, but the queen died and then the king died of grief is a story. It begins on a beautiful April morning when a man wakes exhausted and returns to sleep in his beloved 13-year-old son's trundle bed, declaring, this is the most comfortable bed I have ever slept in. Or it begins when the wife says goodbye to the man a few hours later, walking in front of his car, switching her hips a bit, a blown kiss as she heads to his office, and he continues on to his painting studio. Or the story begins as he packs a tote bag with the usual slim thermos of strong coffee made in an Italian stovetop mocha pot, a larger thermos of cold water, two tangerines, a plastic sack of raw almonds. The tote is astral blue and painted with Giotto angels. Off to his studio for a day of painting, then home, as if nothing extraordinary has happened when in fact he has been envisioning worlds hanging the Giotto bag on a hook in the mudroom and changing out of his paint-splattered jeans into gym shorts and a t-shirt for yoga in the family room or a run on the treadmill in the basement. Soon the two children will walk down Edge Hill Road from the bus stop like burrows under their knapsacks and his wife will prepare dinner while listening to Thelonious Monk's evocative open intervals and sipping from a glass of white wine that he's opened and poured for her. My frosty white, she'd ask a few times a week, and he'd chuckle and say, right away, my love, chop, chop. They enjoyed playing and acting out boy-girl courtliness. The 13-year-old does his homework, and the 12-year-old practices his drumming. The man's home life is the unchanging, beautiful same, so anything could occur in the painting studio each day. I am the wife. I am the wife of 15 years. I am the plumpish wife, the pretty wife, the loving wife, the smart wife, the American wife. I am eternally his wife. Perhaps the story begins with the three dozen lottery tickets he bought two days before he died, which I discovered weeks later when they came fluttering out of the pages of one of the many books he was reading. Or it begins with his surprise 50th birthday party, four days before he died, and the spoken tributes from his loved ones and strawberries and pancakes and music the next morning. 
Or it began when I met him 16 years before. That was always a good story, an actual coup de foudre, a bolt of lightning, love at first sight. I felt a visceral torque, I would tell people, a literal churn of my organs, not butterflies, not arousal, rather a not unpleasant rotation of my innards as never before. Lightning struck and did not curdle the cream, but instead turned it to sweet silken butter. Lightning turned sand into glass. The story began in the winter of 1961 when two quietly mighty women were each pregnant, one in Asmara, Eritrea, the other in Harlem, USA, one with her sixth child, one with her first. The East African sun would arrive on March 21st, 1962, the most hallowed day of the zodiac. It is the beginning and the end of the astrological calendar, and so it is said that children born on March 21st are ancient souls who possess the wonder and innocence of newborns. The American child, a girl, would come on May 30th into the chatter and buzz of Gemini in Gotham. The story begins on a Thursday night. I bring an unexpected guest home to stay with us, an artist friend who'd spoken on campus that afternoon. When I take her to her hotel after dinner, we find that it is in a deserted corner of town far off the beaten track, so I offer to bring her to sleep in our guest room. She accepts with relief, and I call Figre to let him know company is coming. When Lorna and I arrive 10 minutes later, the house is lit and glowing. The kettle is hot and tea is brewing in the black Japanese cast iron pot. Fikre has put raw almonds in a small celadon bowl. It is late, the boys are sleeping. We are so pleased to live like this, organized and open and welcome when friends pass through and we can bring them to Hamden, the hamlet adjacent to New Haven where we recently moved to live in a tan stucco arts and crafts style house surrounded by a magic garden. Hamden, my first suburb, albeit a very urban one. Hamden, where Fikre fell in love with property that reminded him of the African compound where he grew up amidst flowers, inside walls his mother painted apricot, spring sky blue, rose violet, and butter yellow. The next morning I organize the children for school and send them off and Fikre makes coffee when our friend rises shortly after. We three drink our cappuccinos under the gazebo, which he'd painted in the delicate colors of the remembered borders of his mother's gaudy, gauzy dresses and shawls. Some might take the colors for straightforward pastels or Monet water lilies, but they came from Africa and from his mother. Hanging inside the gazebo is a mobile he fashioned from some slender, twisty branches that blew down in the yard after the storm. The mobile turns gently in the breeze, the morning is gray, and the yard smells of the fresh, damp earth of early spring. As we walk toward the house, something makes us look back into the yard over our shoulders. There is a giant hawk sitting on the branch of our hundred-year-old oak tree, eviscerating and devouring a squirrel. We freeze to watch. The raptor is utterly focused on its task. I watch Fikre and Lorna scrutinizing, their artist's eyes recording what they see. The hawk attends to its business undisturbed. It is rapacious, it takes what it wants. The bloody ribbons of the squirrel's entrails hang off the branch as the hawk eats the entire remains of the hapless rodent in about five minutes. 
Fikre tells us he has seen the bird the day before with the children and shows us a short video he took on his phone of the creature on the same branch eating another squirrel. I have seen a hawk a few times, but never one so intent on its survival, never seen predation itself up close and in action. It is pure and elemental, necessarily violent, riveting nature itself. We watch for as long as we can before we have to go off to the duties of our days. Some weeks later on his bureau, I find an acrostic Vikre made, which exhausted variations on the word hawk. He'd assign numbers to the letters and then assign those numbers to lottery tickets, which I later discover he bought by the dozen and secreted in the pages of the books that he was reading. And now we'll talk a little bit about paintings. And uh, uh, you'll just have to trust me uh, when I take off the wife hat and put on the cultural critic hat for, the, for this portion of, of, of my remarks to say that what you're about to see is uh, a major body of mostly unknown work by a painter who makes an extremely significant contribution to contemporary art, simultaneously expanding the conversation about what is African art today and what is exciting in African-American and American art. Uh, and so I'll refer to him as Fikre, not uh, just because of my own intimacy with him, but rather because that is how he wished to be known. He signed the paintings when he signed them, Fikre G. His first name, full, full name, Fikre Mariam Gebreyesus, means lover of Mary, servant of Jesus, and in its shortened version means love, something that was not lost on him in his day-to-day -day life and is an apt artistic moniker for someone whose avid love ethic motivated him to pull in everything around him to create a fresh and exciting visual perspective on the world. He was born in Asmara, East Africa, as, as you've heard, and was a refugee in Sudan, Italy, and Germany, came to the United States at the age of 19, and lived almost 30 years of his life in the perhaps unlikely place of New Haven, Connecticut. So resolutely an Eritrean artist, an East African artist, and uh, an African artist, and at the same time unambiguous about being a black artist and an African American. Before he came to this country, he was exposed to US and global black power rhetorics. An early visual icon for him was Angela Davis's luminous Afro and thinkers such as Martinique and Franz Fanon, black soul music from Sam Cooke to James Brown, feeding that into a conversation in his head with Fela's music from Nigeria, Jamaican music by Bob Marley, and so forth and so on in the words uh, that he would use to describe himself a global syncretist, consciously a diasporist whose rich background enriches our understanding of what contemporary art and blackness is all about. We are fortunate to have a rich statement for him that he wrote on the occasion of his application to the Yale School of Art, and I'll read um, from a little bit of it as we look through some of the very, very early work. He wrote, I started painting 10 years ago, this is in 2000, but I suspect I have been metaphorically doing so all my life. When I started painting, I just did it. I had never felt a stronger urge. The pieces that flowed out of me then were very direct. They had to do with the suffering, persecution, and subsequent psychological dilemmas I endured before and after becoming a young refugee from the Independence War, which ran from 1961 to 1991, in my natal home of Eritrea. 
Painting was the miracle, the final act of defiance through which I exercised the pain and reclaimed my sense of self, my moral compass, and my love for life. From Eritrea, I found myself in New York City, where my tiny kitchen table became instantly the studio table. And so what we see in the very early paintings are mostly large, dark canvases lit with brilliant corners of insistent light, which give us a sense of uh, places and spaces um, during that independence war infused with the light of determined humanity that would not be deferred or extinguished. In New York, he worked at the Art Students League with Joe Stapleton, one of the last of, uh, of, of, the, uh, um, of the New York abstract expressionists, as well as with Bob Brown, uh, Bob Blackburn, excuse me, at the, um, at the Printmakers Workshop. And in that period, he was bringing together, here some paintings again, referencing pockets of light in the early days. Um, there, he had worked um, in a school teaching young people uh, math and film and literature um, in a school that was uh, uh, an air raid shelter. Um, so you see a lot of, uh, of these kind of, you know, people staying dark for protection, but, but these kind of glowing areas of light in the very early work. And then he comes to New York and um, is very, very uh, influenced by a lot of the suffering that he sees around him. Uh, uh, there are a lot of subway paintings. And you can see, and this is a, a painting that's a sketch for later work, some of his influences when he's studying at the Art Students League. He's looking at Ben Shahn's work and finding that to be very influential. If you look back to the bench ladies. Um, and uh, is also thinking about you know, the large, heavy body shapes uh, in Romare Bearden's you know, work that on the earlier side, uh, as well as, as Leon Golub. So here we have more subway paintings in the early years. Okay, so now we're moving forward. Um, Asmara, this from uh, his artist statement, is a beautiful city at 8,000 feet above sea level, planned and designed by Italian colonialists at the turn of the century. In addition to the collision of architectures, iconographies, and propaganda art, there was the unique and palpable visual aesthetic of death. Soviet tanks rumbled through the streets, fighter planes strafed the skies, and deadly uniformed soldiers rummaged through the streets, a medieval version of Hell Incarnate. Government-sponsored death squads had powers of emergency over any Eritrean citizen. I suspect I have carried this angst and fear within me to this day, for when I paint, I am accompanied by dissonance, syncopation, and the ultimate will for life and moral order of goodness. And so to that last point, what he found when he came into the New York context, in addition to the artists that he was studying um, while also doing um, activist work organizing Eritrean students in North America, um, was um, the, the great African-American art tradition which first became known to him, Hale Woodruff, Charles Alston, Romare Bearden, thinking about different ways of thinking about what a social practice art might be, what public art might look like. Those are the artists who um, helped him do that. And and he also becomes much more influenced by jazz music and by the power of abstraction in jazz music, which he tries to translate into a color-driven abstraction that has um, a kind of a mirrored relationship in the rhythmic drive of jazz. And so we begin to see that uh, there. Um, what we also see, he comes to New Haven. He becomes uh, a chef. He builds a restaurant in New Haven called Cafe Adulis, which is sort of a legendary, beautiful place. He talks about chefing and cooking as being at one with his painting. Um, he thinks of it all as being artistic practice. And uh, when he uh, lands uh, in into 
family life. Um, uh, that is when you see um, uh, the color palette changes, uh, and um, he has sort of landed someplace um, where um, there's a different sort of uh, energy and felicity in the work. So you see this really um, big transformation. There's a whole series also of these very, very big, ambitious map paintings. Um, and Julie Moretu's work comes later, um, but uh, what I think the conversation that both of those artists of the East African diaspora are thinking about um, is the idea of you know, vectors and maps spinning around the world, um, this sense of diaspora as a very, very active process. And that's what I see in this painting. Here we have um, Skunder Bogosian, just to kind of intersperse some influences. And then uh, moving forward into another, another period of abstract work. Whoop. There we go. This is called, I Believe We Are Lost. OK, so I want to talk about the language a little bit here. Um, when he was a child, one of his nicknames was Manja Libro, Book Eater. And indeed, his hungry lifelong love of reading and language is everywhere in his work. Connected to his love for books and his insatiable curiosity of mind was his relationship to languages. He spoke seven living languages well, Tigrinya, Amharic, Italian, English, Arabic, German, Spanish, could say hello and thank you in literally dozens of other languages because as he said, what could be more important to know in a language besides thank you, and was teaching himself Mandarin and French. His language acquisition was an emblem of the politics of colonialism and exile. When he left Eritrea as a teenager in the midst of the Red Terror and Derg regime, his life as a refugee took him to Sudan, Italy, Germany, and then to the United States. Uh, Eritrea, as many of you know, was um, for some time an Italian colony. He received a very beautiful uh, early education from Italian nuns and priests, and that was the language of extensive book study for him. Amharic also was a colonial tongue for a long, fraught period. Spanish came from years of restaurant work, communicating intimately with the people he worked with in his kitchens. But his relationship to language also said everything about his respect for others, his sense of us all as potentially connected global citizens, and his constant curiosity to learn and then amalgamate different ways of thinking and being in the world. There is so much language in the paintings. I think of them as, uh, as kind of an Esperantist's paintings, someone who understood profoundly that languages are epistemologies as well as human bridges. And I've loved, um, when we've shown some of this work, seeing um, Tigrinya speakers go up and uh, try to read them, but they're not in any language, actually. They just look like they are. I mean, there, there are Tigrinya letters in there, um, but there are also other letters in there. So I think that it has this wonderful uh, effect of being brought into something that you think you should be able to decipher, but actually no person on earth can decipher it. So therefore, everybody is on an equal plane in this um, kind of um, fabulous um, babble. Uh, and here's a Hale Woodruff. So again, you can just see you know, some of the things he's interpolating and listening to. Uh, and then here are some small, uh, that was a Langston Hughes poem, an Auden poem. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. From uh, Auden's September 1, uh, 1939. This uh, Zorniel Hurston painting. Um, uh, that was what spoke to him when he was about to become a father. Um, so um, uh, those are the language, um, the language pictures. 
There's a keen sense of story and narrative in the work. He worked in different dimensions and configurations, but the narrative drive for the long horizontal painting is one he returned to, telling us that, quote, storytelling comes naturally in East Africa, where the mainstay of culture is orally transmitted from generation to generation. Many Eritreans are still illiterate, and the cultural and visual communication is relegated to Coptic Orthodox church facades and interiors. Murals and mosaics of saints and angels abound. There is an equally strong presence of Islamic iconography on the exteriors and interiors of mosques. Concomitant to those two ancient presences in my growing up years in the capital city were wartimed mural-sized portraits of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and depending if he was in favor, Chairman Mao, as well as Ethiopian dictator Colonel Mungulu, uh, Mangustu Hailemariam. And uh, uh, it's interesting to, to think about and talk about what does it mean to come out of um, a kind of everyday art tradition and a didactic art tradition, and again, to sort of bring that all together with um, other influences into your work. So we're going to look at this for a minute um, as we move into, uh, we're going to move back to the book. We courted over six weeks in the summer of 1996. At the end of the first week, we decided to marry, but told no one. They'll think we're crazy, we said. It's our secret. We were certain. We ate little, drank sweet cafecitos, and listened to Ahmad Jamal, Betty Carter, Abby Lincoln, Randy Weston, and Don Pullen, geniuses of the African diaspora we both celebrated. We wrote dozens of haikus back and forth in a shared notebook, and he nicknamed himself Basho in Africa. Basho wrote in the 17th century in Japan's Edo period and was thought to be the greatest practitioner of haiku, but he is even more renowned for leading others in renku, a collaborative linked verse poetry. No one had ever asked me to write poems together again, to write poems together. How I researched tiny Eritrea when I first met him. How I practiced saying his name correctly. Playing his first answering machine message over and over again to get it right. How I opened myself to learning this brand new person from a brand new fascinating place. I came from the pig people, and he came from the cow and the sheep people. Some of my people were midland slaves who made something from nothing and masses leaving. Some of my people were fancy and free. He came from forever free Christian Coptic Highlanders who alternate seasons of harvest bounty and Lenten veganism. That was the interesting idea of us, East and West Africa married, descendants of slaves who survived, descendants of free people of color, descendants of freedom fighters never enslaved, the strongest of all to be conjoined in our children. Sometimes we talked about this, but mostly we just talked the deepest thoughts, the sweetest thoughts, the questions we had waited forever to ask. He was a bottomless boat, and the boat that would always hold me. To another section after his, his sudden passing. Our sons at the time were 12 and 13. So one of them, Simon, is in here. We loved Jimmy Scott's version of the David Bird Byrne song, Heaven. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. These days, I picture heaven populated by the umber angels Fikre painted in abundance, but that seems too fanciful. I never truly believed in heaven and cannot manufacture it. Little Jimmy Scott's plaintiveness seems right when he sings, nothing ever happens. How better to describe the infinite solitude of the afterlife? 
When this kiss is over, it will start again. It will not be any different. It will be exactly the same, he sings. Each kiss is fixed. It is the same long kiss, but it will never change. That is the comfort, and that is the heartbreak. One night at bedtime, Simon asks if I want to come with him to visit Fikre in heaven. Yes, I say, and lie down on the bed. First you close your eyes, he says, and ride the clear glass elevator. Up we go. What do you see, baby, I ask. God is sitting at the gate, he answers. What does God look like, baby, I ask. Like God, mama, he says. Now we go to where daddy is. He has two rooms, Simon says, one room with a single bed and his books and another where he paints. The painting room is vast. He can look out any window he wants and paint. That room has four views, our backyard, the dock he painted in Maine, Asmara, and New Mexico. New Mexico, I ask. Yes, Simon says, the volcano crater with the magic grass. Ah, yes, I say, the caldera, where we saw the gophers and the jackrabbits and the elk running across, and Daddy called it the veldt. Yes, do you see it? And I do see it. The light is perfect for painting. His bed in heaven is a single bed. Okay, it's time to go now, Simon says, so down we go. You can come with me any time, he says. Thank you, my darling. I don't think you can find it by yourself yet, he says, but one day you will. So here we start moving into uh, more mature work um, uh, that happens before and then through his time uh, at the Yale School of Art. His time in art school was a mixed bag. He was a grown-up, extremely open to learning, as he always was, but certainly not a malleable kid. He was a respected town professional by then, a father of two. His particular African diaspora aesthetics were sometimes misread by teachers. But he had good experiences, made some fascinating work of different kinds, um, and uh, uh, there's more to say about that, but um, let me just take you through some of those um, later um, paintings. This is in the Yale um, uh, Art Gallery, so again, just kind of looking at some of the influences. He was loved Matisse and actually lived with this poster for a long time before he knew me. So it was a wonderful kind of detective, uh, detective's trail for me to start thinking uh, as a, a, a cultural critic uh, about influences and finding things. And then these to give you a sense of some of the different landscapes. Um, some of these are uh, Italian, some of these are um, East African, and some of these are New Haven. These are just little sketches. It's Lalibella. That's a, an Italian chapel. These are New Haven. So these are little teeny, teeny, tiny paintings. And this is where we also start, start to see an obsession with horizon. These are sketches that make their way into the work and culminate in this solitary boat beneath a bridge. And this is also where we start to see the emergence of um, the um, mysterious uninhabited um, vessels. There's a little ladder there that's climbing out of the vessel. Um, and those um, uh, continue throughout the week, these very, very interesting solitary boats.
and that's on the first cover of, uh, of The Light of the World. We also continue to see uh, a refiguring of colors of his childhood. He described his mother as a great colorist whose influence was felt in her choosing border colors for embroidery, vegetable dyes for baskets, and mixing the vibrantly hued dried and ground spices that went into berbere, the local spice blend of which each respectable home had its own blend. So that's part of what we see going on in um, the colors, um, Coptic iconography making its way um, through. And again, I'm like zipping you through 882 paintings. That's a lot of paintings. So um, just giving you a taste. That's one I particularly like. And this to the very, very small portraits. And this is a, um, a self-portrait um, uh, of himself as, uh, an early, um, at an early age. Um, so as I said, he was raised in the powerful world of Coptic Orthodox rituals with all of its iconography, community for force, and multi-sensory experience with smoldering frankincense combined with mammoth African drums and the haunting eyes of frescoed Coptic angels. The Coptic Church was a site for biblical storytelling and also community continuity and family storytelling that goes back for centuries and has special valence in the face of ongoing war and subsequent diaspora. When he came to painting, there was also the influence of the Scrovegni Chapel and Giotto's influence as the great colorist of European church painting um, for, from his time uh, living in Italy. And by the way, I should say, when he, when he lived as a refugee in Italy, um, he worked as a dishwasher, um, but he uh, went to museums and such. So, you know, just to kind of, you know, disrupt the idea that, you know, he's gone off to the continent to study. Um, you know, he's a refugee. He's, you know, working in a hundred different kitchens, but still finding different ways to bring uh, art into, uh, into his eyes. Um, so this sense of portraiture, I think, comes out of um, uh, a lot of, um, of, of the church imagery, I think. That's a really beautiful one. And these are kind of smallish. That's Anolda, just again looking at, you know, kind of some interesting influences. Um, the influence of Bob Thompson. I think this painting is owned by the Smithsonian. I'm pretty positive. Does anyone know? I, I am almost positive it is. I love this painting. Here we can look at some of the Thompson influences. Those are little tiny sketches. And here's the painting Manja Libro. So these are larger, later works. A hundred years, you see a hundred years of solitude right there. And then the one we started with, and I mentioned some of these baskets where his mother would, um, would commission a weaver and very, very carefully choose the colors. So this is, these are not actually her baskets, but this is uh, something that he, you know, domestic objects that were um, very much a part of his growing up living with these kind, you know, just really master colorists. So then with a big long painting like this here, also trying to work out some of these ideas about narrative and to bring New York City uh, uh, into the work. City with a river running through it, which owes a great deal to Bearden's The Block, work that was very important to him. That's not really an influence, but it's just a Bearden that I love, so I wanted to put it up there. <laughs> And then a little study for um, some of the um, 
uh, gates to uh, the compound. And so I think interestingly this idea of you know magical and impossible spaces that are kept safe from within compound doors, but as you can see a whole uh, very dangerous and militarized life outside. Um, and that inside-outside is very important. Sememesh Berhe, his mother, he titled this Sememesh Berhe's Magic Garden in the spirit of Model Sleet's Magic Garden and all of those paintings. And then you're about to see where um, the Giotto kind of explodes in this work, um, the Sardine Fisherman's Funeral, um, which I'll say a little bit about. Um, this painting, I think of it as, uh, I call it a Pan-African Fantasia that calls to mind um, the phrase that's associated with Romare Bearden's work, the prevalence of ritual. We see jazz funeral umbrellas, uh, New World rituals as West African is the recurrent bottle trees we see in his work. We see Ghanaian Fantasia funeral columns, uh, coffins, excuse me. Obviously a whole different part of the continent, but um, there's this whole amazing Ghanaian tradition of making um, coffins in which you bury people according to what they did in their earthly life. <laughs> They're amazing, really. Um, so back to the uh, Sardine Ficure's painting, the Sardine Fisherman Funeral. Um, that tradition of coffin making began with the Ga people of southern Ghana, continues to the present, and reflects the belief that there is another form of life after death and that the revered deceased must be properly ushered into death where they will become ancestors far more powerful than those who walk on earth and able to influence the living. These, paint, these coffins are only seen on the day of burial and reflect sometimes the occupation but also the status of the deceased. They are referred to as custom fantastic or proverbial coffins made by specialized craftspeople and were shown in a Western context in the landmark exhibition of African art in Paris in 1989, Magicien de Terre, which was at the Musée National d'Art Moderne and was very, a very, very influential um, show um, and a book with which um, Ficre was, um, was quite familiar. Um, I think also um, what you see that's very interesting in this painting amongst the mourners, an outlined figure uh, in the lower left corner which is um, echoing an angel at the other outer diagonal of the page, ghosts, absent presences, the recurrent shape of the compound gate is in the painting, um, the gate between worlds, the portal through which we pass back and forth, the ritual of dying is a pan-African hybrid, the fabric ladder hangs over the side of the boat but upon on which premise would anyone have to climb in or out of a coffin? The Coptic angels are sentries across the top of the page, near ancestors present, guarding the community and ready to usher the exited body into the ancestral domain. But another outlined figure that's very mysterious um, at here at the bottom of the camp canvas, that outlined figure right there, um, Fikre wondered out loud to me on numerous occasions why he couldn't paint out that sinister figure. He, he couldn't, he kept trying to take that out and he couldn't take it out. Why it persisted, why this face was so familiar, why he couldn't put a finger on it, why it had to remain in the frame. A half million people were killed on Haile, uh, uh, Mangustu Hailemariam's watch during the Red Terror. It's, it's Mangustu, but he didn't even realize that when he was making it and when he couldn't get it out. During the Red Terror of 1977 to 1978, the period in which Fikre left the country and began his extended period of a ref, as a refugee. The angels ultimately have more heft and weight in the composition than this sinister figure, but the figure remains. 
Every morning and every night, I open and close my eyes to this painting, Visitation. It allegorizes our first meeting in his studio when I walked through a door that said, Foster Kindness, written on it in graffiti, into my future. In the painting, a man and a woman meet with offerings. From the woman, scarlet red tomatoes, her own fecundity held in cupped hands at her womb. She is wearing all white, the white of the Yoruba goddess Yemaya with her blue nearby in the background, and the white of Obatala, the creator of all human bodies. The solemn brown man humbly offers an eye on a plate. That is what Fikre gave to all of us, his eyes on the world. We stand inside of him and have the privilege of seeing out as he did in his paintings. The eye is also an icon, a protective evil eye that a caretaker offers his coming and imagined family. As in so many of the paintings, he has created a spirit house. Though the pair is meeting for the first time, they are surrounded by the images of the children they will soon have, and their sons are painted as angels. For in his work, there are angels everywhere in landscapes where ancestors are conjured and present. A curtain of flowers rains down over the woman's space, illuminating her. Visitation, this painting, has Fikre's characteristic sense of what Amy Capalazzo called in his work Tutti, the unshakable belief in beauty, in overflow, in everythingness, in the bursting indelible beauty in a world where there is also so much suffering and wounding and pain as he well knew a world in which he walked close to death from birth, ancestors at his side. And if we could play um, the first music cradle song, please. That is Fikre Gebre Jesus in his own magic garden in Hamden, Connecticut. It's a garden that uh, he planted to say he had a green thumb, kind of doesn't begin to describe it. It was like a wild, wild, garden with huge oversized <laughs> vegetables, honestly. Um, and uh, it was magic. So if, if we could play the Jason Moran. Do I have to do something? Oh, oh, thank you. So let me say a few words because I want, what I want us to think about and what this uh, book that uh, The Light of the World is all about is uh, what does it mean to live with the people we have lost in our lives with us? What does it mean in the face of tremendous grief and loss and suffering to realize that we always carry uh, each other with us? What does it mean to have that deep understanding that every shut eye ain't sleep, every goodbye ain't gone, and to walk with our ancestors with us at all times? That has been uh, the meditation that I've been given to understand in the last four years since his sudden loss, and that is what I have channeled into my writing and my thinking and my teaching uh, at every level. Uh, and it's actually the profoundest gift of exploration and uh, artistic trying to know that I could possibly have received. This music cradle song appears on Jason Moran's album, Artist in Residence, which was recorded shortly after the pianist's dear and influential mother died of cancer. Cradle song, as you hear, is a simple elemental solo that sounds something like a mature student's variation on a simple piano exercise, perhaps a variation on a Chopin etude before the student has learned it well enough to play it fluently. It includes uh, that curious sound is the recorded sound of intense pencil writing. According to Moran, this was meant to represent his and to remember his mother's writing and taking copious notes during his music lessons when he was a child. She would sit in the room and take notes that she would then share with him on his playing. 
This very, very small quotidian sound, the presence of his mother's hand, is called back into the music, called across the line between life and death, and in that sound, she is present. The sound of the writing is the second instrument on the recording. The piano solo is then a duet with the mother who was by her son's side as he learned to become a piano player. If the presence of the mother taking notes by her young son's side is what moved him forward and accompanied him as an apprentice, its sound on the recording is what enables him to make art after she has died. And so thank you, if you could um, turn it off, please. I'm sorry to do this to Mr. Jason Moran, thank you. And so back to the light of the world as we come towards a conclusion. The language of flowers is not a language I grew up knowing. I grew up in Washington, D.C., the child of transplanted New York Harlem apartment people who did not know how to grow anything. There were crocuses in springtime that my mother planted along the walkway of our townhouse, and I remember my grandmother, born in Selma, Alabama, reared in Birmingham, then Washington, D.C., advocating that we plant hardy pachysandra, which her sister in Durham used as ground cover. As a little girl in Washington, I liked to sit on the ground beneath the dogwood tree in our tiny front yard at 819 C Street Southeast and search for four-leaf clovers. Clover was all I knew of flower. That was the time I spent in nature. <laughs> a family joke was, they say, I bawled when first placed on grass to crawl. At my elementary school, honeysuckle vines and mulberry trees grew surrounding the parking lot. My best friend and I would gorge at recess in springtime and imagine ourselves foragers in the wilderness. Rain puddles seemed as significant as lakes or ponds. In our neighborhood in the 60s when I was growing up, country people still lived on Capitol Hill. I'd see them in their front yards catching a breeze when our family would go out for slow walks on weekend summer evenings. In their yards grew geraniums and others that I thought of as the province of black people, Negro flowers. Though as an adult, I have rarely been without fresh cut flowers in my home, even a fistful of dandelions in a water glass. I did not begin to know flowers until I knew Ficre and we moved into our home. Now, we're in the time of the book, the first full spring after his death, the still lives he set in the garden emerge. A small composition rises up in a corner by the driveway, a stalk of grape hyacinth, scientific name muscari, derived from musk, referring to the intoxicating scent which Ficre knew was my favorite olfactory harbinger of spring. A rare, almost cocoa-colored tulip, which I now learn was originally planted in the arts and crafts era to match those houses in the style of ours. A shiny, frilled, purple-black parrot tulip that feels as late Victorian as the time period of the house. The whole cluster forms a dark, strange, gorgeous little still life, as carefully made as Ficre's paintings, with histories and etymologies and reference that continue to unfold. With each community of flowers in the garden, a story, white and pink streaked peonies, which always, always blossomed on my birthday, May 30th, his birthday gift to me each year, there was never not a peony clipped and in a short drinking glass to greet me on my birthday morning its head heavy with morning dew and often a small beetle. This spring, I learn our peonies are double blooming, the rarest and most revered by gardeners. Ficre did not see them achieve this status, but he was more patient than anyone I ever knew by far and knew they would come up in the future. 
This year, the peonies are magenta and white, and they blow open as big as toddlers' heads, and soon they are spent and rotten, their petals brown and withered in the ground, over and done till next year. I look along the corner of the house and see the purple and white climbing clematis. If stars could be violet, these would be violet stars climbing across the, sky, the side gate. Once our friends Cindy and Dick came for dinner and Cindy walked through the garden and oohed and odd at the clematis, how did he make them grow so abundantly? That was in the days when my sons called each other brother as their names and Bob Marley's gospel of diasporic love and righteousness played in their young ears each day. And then this morning, out the back, huge ruffled cream and apricot-colored iris. I have never seen these before. I bring the boys to the window one at a time. Look, I say, Daddy is saying hello to us. And he surely is. Through the stalks and the blooms come the touch of his hands on the bulbs. Hi, honey, I say. And I hear him say, hi, sweetie. And the hurt is completely fresh, the missing, the where have you gone. I do not feel comforted. And I am still bewildered from the archaic wilder to be lured into the woods, into some wildness of mind. Will I really never speak to him again? I look again at the color of the iris. It appears in many of his abstract paintings. The New Haven Italian painters who manufactured a catalog of reproductions of his work kept coming to the studio to make color corrections because they said, this color doesn't exist. It only existed in his paintings. Ficre did not paint what he saw. He saw in his mind, and then he painted, and then he found the flowers that were what he painted. He painted what he wanted to continue to see. He painted how he wanted the world to look. He painted to fix something in place. And so I write to fix him in place, to pass time in his company, to make sure I remember, even though I know I will never forget. This is a compound like the one I grew up in, he said, when we first visited the house. He squatted in the yard like it was land to be farmed. Compound, where families were safe even when they were unsafe. Where families were families. Flowers live, and they are perfect, and they affect us. They are God's glory. They make us know why we are alive and human that we behold. They are beautiful, and then they die and rot and go back to the earth that gave birth to them. Um, I want to conclude, if we could play the Shirley Horn, please. So this is Shirley Horn and her recorded version of the song, You Won't Forget Me. And you know, we're thinking about this idea of what's with us uh, after the people we love cross over to the other side and what does art make indelible. Horn recorded this song in 1991 when the tune was all but forgotten. She saw it in a rerun of a 1953 movie called Torch Song, starring jo Joan Crawford, wherein the song was subbed by a singer named India Adams. Horn's recording of this song and the eponymous 1991 album it appears on brought the singer-piano player into full flower of her comeback. I loved this song to no end when it first came out in 1991, so much that it eventually inspired me to write a play in 1995 about a black woman artist, a dancer, facing the failure of her dancing body and the end of her life with sorrow and regret and the cavalcade of ancestors who came to do the crucial work of taking her across the water, taking her to the other side. Miles Davis was a mentor to Horn in the early days of her career. She's from Washington, D.C., as you probably know, which is why I also wanted to close with her. 
following her study as a child from the age of 12, piano and composition at Howard University. She went to Howard when she was 12. Um, people used to be smarter. Uh, she received admission to Juilliard, but her family could not afford to send her. She said, quote, Oscar Peterson became my Rachmaninoff and Ahmad Jamal became my Debussy. She would sneak into the famous jazz club, clubs in the U Street corridor as a minor and formed her first jazz trio when she was 20. And Miles Davis helped her get a recording contract. Her career had, I don't know if we call it a detour, but its road uh, went this way when she raised her family in Washington and confined her playing to mostly local clubs. She reemerged and developed her new fan base in the late 1990s. So just to listen for a minute, when she recorded this, she asked Davis, who at that point uh, had had as many lives as a cat, to play on the record. By the time the record was released in 1991, Miles Davis was dead. So this became his last studio recording as a sideman. And what I think we hear here, see here, here emphasized is the always alreadiness of Miles's ghostly sound, the horn moving over the words, you won't forget me, no matter who you are, with whom you are, you'll think of me. I think the presence of Davis as recent ancestor on this recording moves the song away from a lover's lament that she will never be forgotten to a lover's speaking across the line between life and death. The four main musical lines of the song are all notably delicate and spare. Horn's voice, the piano, Miles' horn, and that steady drum line that you hear. Right there. I think that sparseness mimics the spare and coded communication of a long life together, the shorthand of intimate communication of old marrieds finishing each other's musical sentences, knowing what the other is thinking, stepping in with what the other needs to complete a thought. The drum, quite notably, to my mind, is like a metronome, a ticking clock. Indeed, by the end of the song, it is even more pronounced, as though time for the couple has run out, but the clock ticks on. You won't forget me and the expressive presence of the horn make this a song to me about eternal love and that which remains when bodies are no longer coterminal. You won't forget me is not a wish, not a command, but rather a statement of how people remain with each other even after they have left us. And so the black artist in some way, spoken or not, contends here with death, races against it, writes and creates amidst the ghosts we might call ancestors. We listen for the silences. We make that art. We honor our ancestors, leaving a little water and food at the altars we've made for them, and we let them guide our work, the survivors that we are, st standing startled in the glaring light of loss. I'll read from the book over this. The last music Fikre listened to at home was Yusef Latif's The Plum Blossom. It filled our home beginning the Sunday morning after his birthday. Even after he died, there were birthday present ribbons left in the living room. The music was a gift, and Fikre played it over and over that sweet Sunday. The sound was delicate and essential, a single pipe note, a blue note, something impending, and then sudden, like spring rain, it took its time. And then in came the piano, ever so slightly percussive, the sounds layered and built into a quiet, mighty sound. Latif played varied instruments from different global music traditions, strands of a unified sound. You hear him actually breathe into the bamboo flute. You hear his palm on the drum. The music repeated in the warm and human breath of our house that Sunday. 
For many years, Fikre tended in the house a Natal plum bonsai. We bought it in a shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on the way home from a happy trip to Maine. It was a South African variety which amused us when we happened upon it in New Hampshire. Africa is everywhere, baby, he said with a smile. It was spiky and flowerless. For two years, two years, Fikre nipped it and shaped it, watered it, no flower, talked to it, no flower, to coax it into health and bloom. He insisted it live with its ugly, no flower self on the kitchen table in the center of our lives. And one morning, we came downstairs and the whole first floor was suffused with a rare and lovely smell. The bonsai had burst its first small waxy pink blossom. It scented our home. It bloomed for weeks. Orchids would die and I'd throw them away, but he'd set them in the basement to patiently wait for a blossom. Africans are patient, Lizzie, he'd say with a chuckle, but he meant it. Fikre's books, Chinese philosophy, organic gardening, Roman antiquity, Paul Cezanne, Hadrian's Wall, African alphabets. When I was with him, I felt that there was suddenly enough time to talk, to read, to think, to sleep, to make love, to drink coffee or tea, to practice yoga, to walk. I think that everyone felt there was all the time in the world when they were with him. We shared days I can only call divine. I don't want to fix that last Sunday as the most significant Sunday, though one cannot help but do so. I think of my friend Melvin Dixon, also gone too soon from AIDS at 42, and his poem, Fingering the Jagged Grains, a call and response that I took into my body. What did I do? I called to my village. The answer came, you lived, you lived. And the jagged grains, so black and blue, opened like lips about to sing. And so, uh, in thanking you for your time, the thing that uh, I wanted um, to leave you with that is something that I learned in, in uh, uh, coming, uh, getting myself together for this occasion, is that we made a life in art because we knew, even if we never once spoke the sentence in our years together, that human beings need art to live. Living a life in art was a healing for us both, for Fikre, a healing of a life in war and exile, a way to process that violence, but also to remember the magic garden of his childhood and bring forth its powers and fortifications in order that he might share it. For me, as for all of us, for none of us outruns death, none of us outruns sorrow, none of us will escape loss. That is the sad truth. We are all healing from the fissures and challenges of the overgrown field that all of our lives at some point are. We venture out into the field if we have courage. There in the field are the most beautiful flowers imaginable. There are snakes we see and snakes we cannot see and snakes we hear hissing. There are sinkholes. This is all of our lives. Art exalts and amplifies and exemplifies and idealizes and makes bigger and clearer the beauty in this life and is a noble attempt to distill a moment of living and bring it forth in order to share it. So every day, I realize now, uh, we tried to make a new black art. I did not know, of course, how much and how I would need the companion of this art moving forward. And life is full of mysteries that way. Thank you very much.
This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 